Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about how to talk about the art of storytelling in the age of the climate crisis. Because it ain't easy. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana East Hegler. This episode is part three of our Frump Era Review, where we take a look back at the year in climate coverage. We've already done 2016, 2017, and 2018, and this time we're doing 2019. I have to say I'm actually really glad this is our last year in review episode for a while because, oh my God, it's so much material. Man, in the first episode, like 2016 and 2017, we had to really hunt and peck for climate stories, but 2019 was a deluge. Like we know we've had to like painfully strip out stories that we wanted to include. Yeah, it's tough. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it really was. Um, so just as a reminder to our listeners to think of this episode as a collection of snippets from the year. We are very aware that there's a lot of great climate writing that we just simply couldn't get in. Totally. Yeah. And after this episode, we're going current for the rest of 2020. That means we'll be coming to you roughly every two weeks to discuss to discuss the climate conversation. Except not in January. We're only going to be doing one episode that month. Um, at the toward the end of the month because Amy has some really exciting news to share. Yes, I do. And if you want to know what it is, you have to listen all the way to the end of this show. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, it's going to be worth it. All right, we've got a lot to get through this episode. And if you want to follow along, all the articles are linked in our show notes and on our Twitter at Real Hot Take, which you should follow if you're not. And without further ado, let's get this show started. All right. Okay, let's get started with the major climate events of the year, because there were just so many. All over the globe, from the protests, the elections, to COP, and even major changes within the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, it was a really big year. This was a year that the climate strikes really took off. On March 15th, for example, the Ides of March, which... Yeah. I'm amazed I didn't see more signs about the eyes. Beware the eyes of March, but whatever. Um, eyes, tides, <laughs> come on, people. These puns I mean, write themselves. You know, they were like, <laughs> it's mostly eighth graders. I don't know if they're like really into like, you know, Julius Caesar. But on that day, there were 1.6 million students all over 120 countries on strike. It's amazing. I yeah. I know. On September 20th, I don't know how many people there were in New York, but I know I had, I I live in New York and I had never seen a protest that big. It was so crowded that as soon as I got off the subway downtown, I had no cell phone signal. And the only other time I've experienced that at a demonstration was at the Women's March, the very first Women's March. I've never experienced that at any climate-related demonstration ever. And I've been to a few, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I've been to the People's Climate March down in D.C. a couple of years ago. That was not the case at all. Then there were also the Black Friday protests were really big. Mm -hmm. And, And also, there were strikes every single Friday, Every yes. single Friday. And there's, yes. these were just like a couple of the big ones. These are not even all of the big ones. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, the student movement was huge this year. There was also major protests at Google and Amazon and Microsoft from the workers there. And then there were a couple that weren't necessarily climate, but they weren't not climate because nothing's not climate. <laughs> Puerto Rico overthrew its governor, and that had at least something to do with Hurricane Maria. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
they were cracking jokes about the dead bodies that accumulated during and after Shut the Hurricane Maria at the understaffed morgue. Shut and the fuck up. No. And uh, this also with this financial officer guy joked, now, uh, don't we have some cadavers to feed our crows? Oh, and my by cr- God. By crows, he was referring to the um, critics of the administration. He said, don't we have some cadavers to feed our crows? Clearly, they need attention. So, like, these guys were just being really callous about, like, you know, People they're supposed to represent who died in a terrible disaster and like, you know, um, yeah, on top of, yes, also some um, pretty like virulent misogyny and homophobia too. So, yeah. So that's so wild. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There was also, um, you know, the protests that are still ongoing in Chile um, Mm -hmm. and the protests in Hong Kong, which are also still going. And there was the coup in Bolivia. The other big protest, which is also still ongoing, uh, was in Hawaii around Mauna Kea. And this is actually a protest that's been kind of going on and off since 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, which I don't know if people totally realize, like it got way more attention this time than it has in previous iterations. So yeah, I'm not no sure one how noticed many that. Folks... Yeah, yeah. So I was actually on the Big Island when the first protests over this telescope happened. That was in 2014, and then again in 2015. And I was back there again in July 2019 for this one. So it's been going on a long time. Like the the gist of it is that um, there are already several massive telescopes on Mauna Kea. Mauna Kea is a sacred mountain for uh, native Hawaiians. It's also an ecologically sensitive area. And those like it's no coincidence that those two things go hand in hand. Like that's generally why things are sacred in indigenous cultures. It's not just like an arbitrary thing, you know. Yeah. It's not like something um, you can move either. Like, oh, yeah. cool. Can you just move your sacred site so we can have a telephone? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and and like the the protesters have always been incredibly pragmatic about it. Like, there's been this kind of ongoing attempt to paint them as being sort of like, you know, um, people who are anti-science or this idea of it's like, oh, it's like, you know, Hawaiian mythology versus science. And it's like, no, like they have said, look, um, we're not saying that you need to remove all the telescopes that are already there. We're just saying like, there's no need to cause more damage to the mountain. And one of the main things, like, actually, um, the guy who kind of organized these protests initially is a guy named Lanakila Manguil. And he, um, I like, I spent some time with him, and he was explaining to me that, like, he's like, you know, um, that telescope that they want to build, the whole, like, purpose of it is to, to look for other habitable planets. And he's like, we have not taken responsibility for this planet. Why the fuck should we, like, destroy a sacred site to look for another planet when, like, we have failed to, like, take responsibility for how we use this one? And I was like, good point, man. Wait, like, also, I- can I just say that, like... <laughs> Okay, so they're trying to paint the the indigenous folks as being, like, anti-science and somehow kind of, like, fantastical. Meanwhile, you're out here looking for a new planet to live on. Yes, yes, totally. (laughs) 
Totally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The whole cosmology of how indigenous Hawaiians view the land and the resources and whatever is that everything is connected. And so even the way that they would historically uh, divide up land to give, you know, this land to this person or that land to that person or whatever was always in what they call apua'a, which are like these pie slices that include mountain flatlands and coast so that like you have to worry about the impact what you're doing up the mountain has down at the coast Mm -hmm. you know which is like brilliant and super logical and like not at all how you know the mainland divides land so anyway i'm i'm kind of like uh actually and this is something that lana kila was saying too he's like you know actually hawaiians have a very good understanding of science and biology and ecosystems and um what you guys call mythology you know was just like our early science it was our stories for understanding the ecosystems around us and how to take care of them. I mean, what if they understand Earth science? They've understood Earth sciences for so many millennia that, yeah. you know, it's not exactly knowledge, it's not data, it's intuition at this point. Exactly. This well, in the way that by he... generations, right? Like that's what you call generational knowledge. Yes. Yes. And in, in, for Hawaiians, it goes even deeper than that, where they consider themselves genealogically attached to nature. That um, makes so much sense. Yeah. Shouldn't really, human really beings be attached yes, to Yes, exactly. Like, nature isn't this thing that's separate from us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, of course, we're part of the environment. So right. anyway. Man versus nature is an oxymoron. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I, I would encourage people to like, look for Hawaiian voices on this, because they're definitely there was actually like quite a bit of coverage of the protests. And I noticed like a lot of parachute journalism where people come in for like a week or a weekend and then peace out. And like, you know, Mm -hmm. this excerpt that I'm going to read is from a story that ran in Indian Country Today. Shortly after the protest started, it's by Alia Chavez. And Alia is Pueblo, not Hawaiian. But she interviewed uh, some of my favorite sources on this, including Lana Kila and a climate scientist um, named Katie Kamela Mela, who I thought, like, just covered this stuff really well on Twitter and is continuing to do so. So if you want to follow her, she's at K. T-E-A-B-A-M, so Katie Bam, but it's K-T-E-A-B-A-M on Twitter. Also, the headline of this story is amazing. It says, Kanaka Mali, that's the term that Native Hawaiians use to refer to themselves. Don't mistake our aloha for weakness. Ooh, love it. (laughs) I love it. I know. I was like, yes, I like it. Protesters are following a sacred mandate called Kapu Aloha in committing to nonviolence. They ask people to, quote, keep good energy by refraining from being too loud or belligerent. Other guidelines include no drugs and alcohol at the site, amongst other things. We are genealogically connected to this mountain, says Lanakila Managuil, 32. We We refer to the Mauna as a pico, which is a focal point of spiritual power. The telescope is proposed to be nearly 18 stories high and will cost $1.4 billion. It will sit next to 13 other astronomical observatories atop the mountain if successfully constructed. Damn. The 
I know. That's the thing. It's like there's already 13. Um, (laughs) The conflict. Yeah. The conflict on Mauna Kea is not about Hawaiians versus science. Native climate scientist Katie Kamela Mila said. It's about the state breaking their own laws, protocols, and commitments. So I should say here, too, that the reason that there are so many of these observatories atop Mauna Kea is that it's one of the clearest places in the world to view stars because there's no light Mm -hmm. pollution. It's a really special place, you know? (laughs) And it's very interesting, too, because it, it has kind of dovetailed with the Hawaiian independence movement in some ways, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, there's there's a little, there's an interesting thing in Hawaii where, like, um, some people want Hawaii to be its own independent country again, and there's an interesting kind of debate about whether they should be recognized as a tribe or seek independence entirely, um, and a lot of, and there's actually, like, really heated arguments between people on both sides of that, um, of that divide, but the Mauna Kea stuff. Kind of like um, Puerto Rico. Exactly. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. But the Mauna Kea stuff like very much kind of kicked off more discussions around that because it's like, see, this is why we need to have our own control over our land. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing that, of course, on like various other indigenous lands, too. It's the same kind of thing that we're seeing across the country. So... Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. There yeah. are also uh, a couple of really big elections in 2019. Yes. Um, most recently, there was the election in the UK where oh. Bor- uh, Boris Bojo. Johnson, uh-huh. yeah, affectionately, disaffectionately known as Bojo, won <laughs> prime minister in the UK. Yeah, that sucked. That sucked. Yeah. Uh, Want to tell us yeah. why that sucks, Amy? Because I don't think I got the words. I mean, you know, he was one of the main Brexiteers. Um, He has done a lot of shady stuff, like he's suppressed a report about possible Russian involvement in Brexit until after Mm -hmm. the election, which just seemed like super, super shady. He has given lip service to climate stuff, but never actually, you know, done anything. So there's not not very high hopes that he'll be like the guy that makes climate policy happen in the UK. Yeah, and And Extremely anti-immigrant. Anti-immigrant, anti-migrant, which I think also kind of does relate to some of the the climate-induced migration patterns that we've been seeing over the past several years. Global leadership that consists of Morrison in Australia, Trump in the U.S., Bojo in the U.K., Bolsonaro in Brazil, like none of that is good for climate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The other uh, big election was in Canada, where that was starting to look a little bit dicey about whether uh, Justin Trudeau was going to win. And look, I am not a fan of of Justin Trudeau. Um, this is honestly one of the first times I've ever actually said his name right. And um, <laughs> because I feel like he gives a lot of lip service to climate and then doesn't deliver on it. I mean, like, he really lost me when he was like, what country in the world would have this much oil and not dig it up? A fucking sane <laughs> one, Justin. A fucking sane one. Not a, know, a one that I... does not want to commit genocide. How about that? That's the, that's the fucking country. Except your country was built on genocide, but okay. 
totally. I feel like he gets a pass for, for like from a lot of Americans for like just being not as bad as Trump, you know? <laughs> and yeah, it's like, oh, and he gets like, a pass he's like socially he's... progressive and like, you know, whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, but his policies fucking suck. And also like, I think Americans kind of like to believe that that like Canada's not as racist and like not as shitty to Oh my god, yeah, we love we are, but that. I'm like no, it's still pretty bad, though. Pretty bad. Yeah. I also, I think he gets a pass because he's, you know, people think he's handsome. But we need to yeah. just go ahead and, and admit to ourselves that he looks like a slightly... He's Ted Cruz with a better cheekbone. He's like Ted Cruz's slightly better looking brother. Yes, you're right. Totally. He's oh like God. a little bit taller, maybe in a better shape. You know, like, ugh, he's not that attractive. Can we call him Justin Cruzo? <laughs> Yes. Yes, we can call him that. Oh my fucking God. I can't believe I didn't think of that before. That's his name. That is his name right now. Okay. Um, there we but go. Done. All things being equal, though, he was better than his opponent by a, a mile. Yeah. Um, that's true. For the yeah. climate, for the country, for, for everything else. Even though Homeboy did blackface. Like, how did we get oh, to this God. point where the dude with the black face is the one I'm rooting for? Like, fuck oh, everybody God. for putting me in this position. I'm rooting <laughs> for the Tar Sands champion who wears a black face. Fuck all y'all. But oh, anyway, I, I, I do it's still true. have hope that he's going to use his second term to be a better climate champion. Um, to act like he has some fucking sense to get all the shoe polish out of his house and off his face. Um, yep. Like, homeboy, this is a second chance you have to fucking redeem yourself, okay? Yeah. So, yeah, that's where I'm at with that. Yeah. Okay, so that is actually a good segue into talking about some of the changes that the oil and gas industry went through in 2009, which was uh, one of the first shifts that we've seen in quite a while of, of its major capital investments, slightly away from refining or fracking, and not as their ads would have you believe into algae biofuels or carbon capture, but into making plastic. Just recently in, in 2019, they started to really shift more of their investments into not just the petrochemicals market, which they've always been in, that's like supplying petroleum-based chemicals to plastic manufacturers and various other manufacturers that use those chemicals, but also actually into building factories that make plastic themselves. And they're doing this in two ways. One is um, what are called crude to plastic factories. So where they're taking like actual petroleum and turning it into plastic. And the other is what they call ethylene cracker facilities. So these are set up generally next to or very close by fracking well pads because ethylene is is emitted from fracking sites and they can capture that and basically take it through a whole process that that turns it into a key component of plastic and so because they're doing it because they're using like part of the emissions from fracking to do this or whatever they're they're totally trying to spin that 
plastic in particular as like a green material, which is like just ridiculous because on top of the fact that, you know, it still creates plastic, which is like an inherently unsustainable. Also, these facilities emit just an enormous amount of CO2. You know, if just the the factories that have been permitted so far in the US are allowed to move forward, it will totally negate the emissions gains we've made on coal in the last five years, which is fucking criminal. It makes me so angry. And it, it like really infuriates me that like that this is what they're actually doing. And that like, I'm just I'm not seeing that much about it. Like I'm, I'm seeing some really good coverage of it. But I'm not seeing a lot of awareness of the issue in even like very knowledgeable environmental circles. The absolute last thing we need is for fossil fuel companies to be investing in yet a new way to generate more emissions. You know, I, it, it seems so <laughs> unnecessary to me, right? Like it, it is. It, it, it yes. doesn't make sense. It's like, why do we have to be on this death wish with you? The only reason for it is to deliver profits to fossil fuel companies. That is the only reason for it. It absolutely makes no sense at all. And like, I just and don't you get it. Like, you're going to die like, too. Right? So where the fuck are you going to spend this money and on what? And who's going to be alive to sell it to you? It's like, what the fuck is the point of all of this money? It is crazy. It's crazy. So anyway, there's a journalist named Jim Bruggers who's been a champion reporter on coal forever. Like he's been at it for, you know decades. And he wrote a really great piece about this for Inside Climate News, where he talks about plastic being like the new coal in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I want to just like read this entire piece to every person I meet. (laughs) Like really freaking important. And I just feel I'm just like, how are people not seeing this? It's so Yeah. yeah. So I just if there's like one, it's totally been my soapbox lately to like tell people about this. And I'm I'm genuinely surprised by how many people I know who are like very climate aware and don't know that this is happening. Um, well, they do I a really good job like, of obscuring it. Yeah, they do. And I just, I feel like, okay, you know what? Like we have a very narrow window here where like this doesn't have to happen. This is a thing that we could stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and not have to like go back and undo. Yeah. I know a lot of climate advocates who uh, think that the plastic problem is like, it's horrible, but it is uh, kind of a distraction from the bigger threat, which is climate change. And it's actually like, incredibly intertwined so intertwined yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah there was also cop 25 okay and what cop is it stands for the united nations conference of the parties it is the biggest international climate conference we call it cop 25 because it's the 25th such conference it's held every year around november december and it's where all of these uh Heads of state and diplomats from all over the world get together to decide how are we going to tackle climate change? Kind of depressing that that's been going on for 25 fucking years. And where are we at? Like staring down the barrel of a fiery death. Okay. The most famous one was uh, in 2015. It was held in Paris. And that is where we got the Paris Agreement, which was this much vaunted um, multilateral agreement between 
pretty much every country on earth, um, except two at the time, now mm-hmm. except three because the United States pulled out. It was not ambitious enough. We all know that now. And mm-hmm. I think pretty much everybody, well, not everybody, but all, the climate community knew that at the time. Um, but it felt like a win because it was the first time these people had come to a table and decided to do anything and where it actually looked mm-hmm. like they were going to do it. And it looked so promising because the United States was leading. And the United States as uh, the second biggest emitter today and by far the biggest emitter historically, that's critical. Um, however, mm-hmm. we, mm-hmm. we've we lost that since then. So that makes the cops yeah. after 2015 all the more important. It was, it was a lot of like biting your nails and seeing what's going to happen. So COP25 was originally set to be held in Brazil, but then Bolsonaro, uh, who is <laughs> uh, a climate goon, shall we say, yes. uh, was not having <laughs> it. Um, so yeah, then it yeah. was moved to Chile. Um, but, uh, as we were just talking about the civil unrest in Chile meant that they couldn't host it there. So eventually they moved it to Madrid. And for a second there was like, are, are we going to have cop or not? Like we really didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but they moved it to Madrid in Spain, which is, you know, the colonial father of Chile. So like kind of, yeah. you know, kind of fitting yeah. and not fitting yeah. at the same time. <laughs> um, and to put it mildly, it was a clusterfuck. Yeah. An absolute clusterfuck. I mean, it was really bad. I just, I kept, I feel like all I saw about COP25 as it was happening was like youth protesters taking to Twitter to talk about how they were being like chased out of places and like generally abused by police. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, we're doing this now? Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And not just youth, but also especially indigenous uh, leaders were being Mm -hmm. pushed out um, or not even allowed in. Um, And like at one point, I remember like they they had some events and they weren't going to like allow the indigenous folks in the room. They weren't going to allow them to speak until Greta Thunberg herself was like, no, you're going to let them speak. (laughs) Um, So like you've got... This Greta, this remarkable young woman, but a teenager showing the UN how to be a good ally. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like that is yeah. fucking pathetic. I mean, like it's just crazy. shout out to Greta for Absolutely doing it, crazy. but it's really fucked up that that's on her shoulders. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. So, um, as our resident old climate lady, I have to, <laughs> I have to, to add a note at, at a from right the way back age machine. of forty-one. <laughs> the, yes, exactly. I'm gonna just uh, so so. I mean, actually, one of the one of the first cops uh, that generated the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, which was actually far more ambitious than Paris and would have been binding, which none of the agreements that have that have been discussed at any of these things since have uh have been that's the wildest part they're not binding that was in 1997 um and the u.s uh basically like the u.s initially was like all in on it and then george w bush comes along and before that a massive and incredibly well-funded industry effort kicks in and the u.s after like agreeing to it, refuses to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. The extent to which this history just continues to repeat itself is quite frustrating. You know, like, you know, we had a lot of the same 
kind of storyline around Kyoto where it's like the U.S. was going to be a leader. Awareness was really high. Public opinion was very much behind actually acting on global warming. It looked like there was, you know, kind of the political will in place to really make something happen. And then the industry kicked into gear and just like buried it. And and you see the fucking exact story play out with Paris, you know, Mm -hmm. more than 20 years later. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's incredibly depressing to watch um and uh and is and that's sort of the focus of this piece that we are going to read from from katie letterer it it showed up in n plus one and it's honestly the only piece i've ever seen written about this whole process that like was genuinely a pleasure to read like i chuckled out loud to myself (laughs) which is not something i ever (laughs) thought i would do reading reading about like this very wonky thing so here is a little snippet from that Its framework is based on the one that produced the Montreal Protocol, the agreement put together to address the growing hole in the ozone layer. But unlike the Montreal Protocol, which was ultimately successful, the results of the COP have been a bust. Why do those who convene and underwrite it keep promoting it as a platform for, quote, ambitious climate action? The COP has officially been talking since March 1995, when it met in Berlin. For the first half of this month, it was talking for the 25th time in Madrid. What is the definition of insanity again? Famous cops have included Kyoto, number three, which the U.S. refused to ratify, from which then President George W. Bush withdrew in 2001. Copenhagen, number 15, which tanked when the U.S. and other large economies failed to hammer out a deal. And of course, Paris, number 21, where in a show of audacious optimism, world leaders set the goal of keeping warming well below a two degree Celsius threshold, the widely received baseline. This after 20 years of failed negotiations. At the time, there was reason to be hopeful about Paris. It helped that the U.S. president was then a person who accepted the reality of global warming. But it wasn't only about politics, red states versus blue, or increased trust in climate scientists. It was also about advances in clean energy technologies. Renewable generation like wind and solar had, in many regions reached price parity with fossil fuels, a development that seemed to promise a dramatic market tipping point. Bankers were eager to expand into new markets, ones that wouldn't contribute to the heating of the earth. The concept of, quote, stranded assets, fossil fuel assets that would be rendered nearly worthless by global action to fight climate change, had been widely taken up. If politics and diplomacy had been unable to address climate change for over 20 years, then perhaps market disruption finally would. But as the markets for low-carbon technology and energy efficiency have grown, fossil fuel interests have come over the top. And she goes on to sort of explain, like, what the hell happened and why this process has been just such a failure. But it's, it's like, it's it's a great uh, overview of, like, you know, these 25 (laughs) meetings and why they failed. And also of, like you know, the context in which they've been happening and, and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I wonder, I, yeah, I wonder if we're even going to have them anymore in the future, to be quite honest, just cause I, I mean, it like just seems like such, such a, a waste of time day. and money. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. And like the emissions been, to have yeah. them are clearly not worth it. Right. Cause everybody yeah. has to fly there. Everyone um, has to fly. And, and, They're big conferences, which like have a big 
footprint and like there's also always really big protests outside them so like the country that hosts them has to do a bunch of like prep and security work and whatever to prevent um any kind of you know violence and whatnot so yeah i mean it it feels like the olympics to me in that way where it's sort of like well maybe we don't need to do this anymore (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's so and and the biggest um going back to the paris agreement um Mm. as the biggest um achievement i guess of any cop yeah um there was some Mm -hmm. news about that this year too from the trump administration right yeah so you know trump promised to pull out of the paris accord in his campaign then he announced that he was pulling out like you know shortly after his inauguration um but it's it was actually just sort of like a lot of show because officially a country can't formally even begin to withdraw until three years after the agreement went into effect. So for the United States, that was November fourth, two thousand nineteen, which is why my birthday. You know... Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that well, yeah. Happy birthday! Um, officially out now. <laughs> so. Uh, uh, yeah, but even still, the United States isn't quite out yet. It takes another year from the withdrawal notice, which was given in November you know, 4th, 2019, to become official. So actually, the U.S. won't formally pull out of Paris until one day after the 2020 U.S. presidential election, which is really amazing because... <laughs> But, like, depending on who's elected, they could just say, like, actually, just kidding, we're not withdrawing. (laughs) They could. But, see, here's the thing. And I actually, like, I remember when Trump was elected and we had, uh, you know, the Paris Agreement was barely a year old at that point. And I remember hearing a lot of folks say, like, well, he actually can't pull out of the Paris Agreement because of, like, all all these hoops that you just described. And, you know, the way Mm -hmm. they were talking about that was, like, this was just some master mind move by by president obama and and by the un it's like actually i think it exposes the weaknesses of the paris agreement to be quite frank it's non-binding it's not fucking binding it's just like a big-ass international pinky square like it's it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean anything it means that you can stay in it and not do a motherfucking thing and just like mm-hmm. put it on your resume, like saying proficient in Microsoft Word. It doesn't mean anything. So yeah. I just like, yeah. that's not evidence of playing the long game. That's evidence of playing the weak game. Yep. So sure uh, is. I just, I don't know. Um, I know. I know. It's ugh, it's depressing. It is super depressing. Maybe no more cops in the future. I don't know. Maybe something better. It could be a video call. Uh, yeah. Can we do a Zoom call, guys? <laughs> just just um, Skype that shit. <laughs> um, yeah. The, um, just as like a little side note, the Montreal Protocol is actually something that people point to a lot as an example of actually successful global action on a climate and environment problem. And that was the ozone issue where, you know, we phased out basically all of these, these chemicals that were contributing to the ozone problem. The big difference there, of course, yeah. is like those chemicals weren't the center of like the energy infrastructure yeah it's a lot more niche it's yeah exactly but it is an example of a time when like many countries came together and dealt with 
an industrial problem that was creating a global environmental issue. Um, so, you know, a, a tiny silver lining there. <laughs> yeah, so it's so tiny, you might miss it. <laughs> All right. And we can't talk about 2019 without talking about the many, many, many disasters that year, which honestly is a sentence you can say about any year in recent memory, to tell the truth. I know last episode, we talked a lot about the language around disasters and how natural doesn't really fit, but also doesn't not fit. Um, So for the purposes of this show, we're just going to call this segment Not Just Natural Disasters. Actually, after our last show, um, we had a really interesting exchange about this sort of nomenclature on Twitter. Twitter with Samantha Montana, who is a really smart disaster expert. And it seems that the jury is still out on the, the perfect term, like we still don't have it. Mm. So just know that as we discuss these events, we understand them all to be intensified and influenced by climate change. We, yes, yeah. we know that forest fires happened before, but nothing like this. Yes, we know that hurricanes happened before, but Dorian was quite literally off the chart. So just keep that in yeah. mind as we, we go through this. So... Yeah, first there was, I'm just going to go through like a list of some of the disasters of this year. It's, it's not comprehensive. In March, we had Typhoon Ida, which killed more than 900 people in, in Africa, mostly in Mozambique. In June 2019, there was a major heat wave in India with at least 90 people dead. There was, in July 2019, there were these heat waves that killed more than 160 people. Um, that's a lot. In August, there's Typhoon Lakima. I hope I'm saying that right. It killed 172 people in China. One of the most arresting uh, disasters of this year was Hurricane Dorian in, in the Bahamas. Some of the survivor yeah. stories from Dorian were just so incredibly harrowing. You know, yeah. you had people who were like, you know, scrambling from building to building and literally swimming from rooftop to rooftop to try to find something that even kind of felt like shelter. There's a guy on Twitter called Josh Mogerman who like chases cyclones, oh, yeah. which, you know, kind of sounds kind of crazy. Uh-huh. He was there for Dorian and he was really shook up from mm-hmm. what he experienced there. And this is the guy who, like, goes to hurricanes on purpose, he sees them on, on a reg. Right. 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 So, like, right, if you're right. freaking him out, this is really serious. And the other thing about the Bahamas versus Puerto Rico is, like, we absolutely did not help Puerto Rico the way that we should have. It's criminal. It is unforgivable the way that, that Puerto Rico was left to suffer after Maria. But... It's also true that Maria did get more help than the Bahamas because it is part of the United States. And that is really sad. Yeah. It says the UN estimates 76,000 people were left homeless after the hurricane in in the Bahamas. That's crazy. There were not a lot of structures left standing after Dorian. And I I was looking for like some personal essays of like firsthand experiences during Dorian Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. read an excerpt on the show. It's actually quite hard to find. And Mm -hmm. I think that that speaks to the very serious trauma. Um, Yeah. Well, and the displacement of people. I mean, right. Like, how are you going to sit down? You're not going to be writing an essay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The other big disaster in 2019, of course, is still ongoing, and that is the Australian. And brush fire season, which is just continuing to be horrific. I mean, all the reports keep saying that it's just going to get worse. 
It is going on right now. <laughs> going on right now. And they're just predicting more and more, you know, hot temperatures, dry winds, all the things that make fires worse. Mm -hmm. um, so as we're taping in, you know, January 2020, so far, 10 people have died. And in the worst affected state, New South Wales, fires have burned more than 3 million hectares, which is 7.4 million acres, destroyed more than 800 houses. So to put that in perspective, in the 2018 California wildfire season, which is the one that, you know, brought us the campfire, which burned down the town of Paradise and all that, 1.8 million hectares burned. So about twice as much as the worst California wildfire season. And I mean, I'm sure it's gotten worse since then because, you know, these these stats are updated daily with more and more acres burning and, and people injured and, and all of that. It's horrific. Like every single picture that comes out of there with these like hazy pink skies and, you know, so many people being evacuated, people, you know, camping out on the beach or on the docks so that they can jump in the water if the fire comes toward them. I mean, it, it's it's I it, people were like hiding out in lakes like yeah. with their babies. I, I mean, it's it's really it is the stuff of of actual nightmares. And yeah. yeah, and it's also um coming on the heels of the Amazon fires which went from August to October of 2019. So you you might have seen this video of uh, a young girl being threatened by police for protesting in Australia. Like the, the fires, you know, have been going on for months. People are starting to get more and more pissed off, especially at the fact that their prime minister, who is a total climate denier, left the country and like went on vacation in Hawaii during all of this, which I will never understand. The fucking nerve. Like that's the most cowardly <laughs> shit in the world. Oh, my God. Yeah, so that kicked off a lot of protests um, at his house. Basically, the, the policeman is, like, right in the face of this very young girl. And she looks terrified. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. 13. And, like, and she just looks terrified, you know? Yeah. And, like, this big cop is, like, really getting in her face. And he's telling her if she doesn't leave, that he will remove her and her dad by force. And she starts to cry. And he's going like, do you understand me, Izzy? And she's like, okay, okay, we'll leave. And her dad is like, yeah, yeah, we'll leave, we'll leave. And so this video went viral and made a lot of people in Australia and beyond kind of be like, what are we doing? Look at what we're doing to the kids, blah, blah, blah. But what I loved was that a couple days after this video, like this girl, Izzy, ends up writing an op-ed in The Guardian where she's just like totally like guns blazing, fuck you guys. Yeah, <laughs> you seriously. Know? Yeah, it was um, really amazing. So I'm, I'm going to read a little yeah. bit from that. Many people have asked me what motivated me to drag my dad on a one-hour bus trip to Kirribilli House on one of the hottest days of summer. My answer? Our politicians' denial and the inaction of our government and our prime minister. Their denial has gone on for far too long. 
I am tired, tired of the lies and misdirection. I am tired of watching my future, my friends and my family's future, all of our futures burn before our very eyes. How dare Scott Morrison race off to Hawaii during Australia's time of crisis? What we need is a prime minister who acknowledges that this isn't another normal fire season and that the cause of this is climate change. Lives and homes have been taken while Morrison lies on a tropical beach with his head in the sand. She's 13, folks. She's 13. Fuck yes. (laughs) Also, just a little addition here that Australians are now calling Scott Morrison ScoMo. So so we have ScoMo and Bojo. Bojo. (laughs) They're fucking clowns. They are clowns. It is is like the fucking clown car of climate goons. It really is. The California wildfire season has seemed like relatively tame in comparison we haven't even really heard much about it but even still it is you know it's it's seemed like california got off easy this year so more than 7000 fire, fires actually close to 8000 fires it has cost 163 million dollars in suppression five people have died 22 people have been non-fatally injured. So, you know, it's not nothing, but compared to the absolute catastrophe in Australia and in the Amazon, um, you know, it's it's seemed like California got off easy this year. Okay, time to get into the themes and trends from 2019. This is the part of the show where we look at some general shifts in the climate conversation in terms of what types of media were being used and some new topics that were introduced. In 2019, we saw a lot of really important shifts. Yeah. Um, So we're going to start by talking about how climate media in general has just like massively expanded. Yeah. We kind of found out the hard way when we were doing the research for this show that like, oh, shit, it ain't just a couple of articles. Yeah. It's like you got your newsletters, your podcasts, your TV show. I mean, it's it's like web series. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And then, of course, we had the climate town halls happening, too, in in lieu of a climate debate, which the DNC refused to hold. Yeah. But there was a major push for that, right? Like, I was amazed just even to see how much energy there was behind having a climate debate. And yeah, Yeah. even though they decided not to have it, the the networks decided to have a climate town hall. And there was also an environmental Mm -hmm. justice town hall. So yeah, I know, um, which is huge. I mean, that is really huge. And I have to say the the stark contrast between 10 candidates being able to speak relatively eloquently and in detail about climate versus like no one even being asked a single question about it in 2016, (laughs) you know, it's like, wow. I mean, at least we've, we've got that going. I don't know. Yeah, I, to me, it really exposes um, the journalistic negligence for not pushing this issue sooner. Yeah, totally. the the networks and the media really should have led the public to this issue as opposed to the public yes. leading the media to it. Right. Because like, I feel like yeah. for a really, really long time, 
um, the media establishment has told, you know, the public, well, you don't want to hear about this. So we're not going to tell you about this. And so in the yeah. past couple of years, the public has been like, no, bitch, we really want to hear about this. And why are you not talking about it? Yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. People really want to get their voices out there. People really want to talk about this issue. And they're talking about it in, in new and different types of ways. I think that that's driven a lot of people to like, if I want to tell this in a more personal way, I want to tell this in a more like revolutionary sort of way, I've got to self-publish it and I've got to get on Medium yeah. and I've got to like find some other way to not have to go through the bureaucracy of the media establishment to get my voice out there. Mm. I mean, I actually think that's been the genesis of some of the newsletters too. I know actually it's been the genesis of a lot of podcasts too that are, there are all these things cropping up to sort of bridge that gap as mm -hmm. mainstream media sort of grapples with, you know, how do we cover this now that we're not doing false equivalents? I see a lot of like remnants of that stuff, to be honest, of like, you know, editors thinking that just like telling the truth is biased, which is really... Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And so I'm I'm glad that there are all these other ways that people can write about climate without right. having and to deal with that. And yeah, and experiment with different storytelling devices and different tones yeah. and different like you know, just approaches to the subject that's really important. Totally. I'm really glad to see more people self-publishing and I think that that is influencing the bigger media establishment actually I think that like yeah. seeing the success of these self-published pieces and realizing like oh that would have been successful so I should have you know, maybe I should look at how I do things. The, another big theme of 2019 is the climate conversation really got democratized. And I saw this show up in a, in a million different places. So like the movement has gotten really big, right? Like climate has yeah. emerged as one of, if not the top issue for Democratic voters, which is like a huge, huge shift even since, yeah. since 2016, right? Like what we were just talking mm -hmm. about. And that yeah. means that the conversation has left the academy. It has left mm -hmm. the ivory towers. It has trickled out of the big green groups. Like you don't have to be in a particular club to be part of this conversation. And what I'm mm -hmm. noticing mm -hmm. a lot in every medium, right? Like I see it a lot on, you know, this mythical place called Climate Twitter. I also mm -hmm. see it just like in real life of like all of these experts and the old guard chasing after this new crowd of people and trying to police their language and trying to police how they understand this subject and trying to police their like how they see the problem right and i yes. i just think yeah. you gotta let go much. honey you gotta let go yes. right like all these years you've been saying you want more people to get involved in this conversation and want more people to care about it but now that they care about it you want them to care about it exactly the way that you care about it. you want them to see it exactly the yep. way that you see it and talk about it exactly the way that you see it um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. so mind-boggling right like <sighs> it's kind of hilarious to me that like people didn't realize that like yes bringing in more people and more different types of people would mean that you can't control the conversation in this very narrow way anymore and also ps like that messaging framework has clearly not worked so like exactly yes part of that is because of you know intervention from 
the fossil fuel industry and various other things and whatever. But like part of it, you know, the movement has to kind of look at itself too, you know, right. um, In the same way that like Russia could only fuck with the U S elections by exploiting existing weaknesses. Like it was not hard for the fossil fuel industry to find and exploit weaknesses in the climate movement. Just right. Um, so <laughs> one know? of the biggest examples yeah. I saw of this was during the Amazon fires. And like that was one of the stories that caught international attention and everybody was, you know, really freaked out about it and um, like up in arms about it. And then I started to see all of these climate scientists like sort of tr- try to chime in and be like, now let's not get carried away. We don't know if this is going to trigger a, tr- a tipping point. Point. We don't know if this, you know, a point of no return where there's no science to support that, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, who the fuck cares? Do you think they actually know what a tipping point means? You know what I mean? Like most people don't know what a tipping point actually means, but they know that this is bad. They know the Amazon should not be on fucking fire like this. So let them freak out. Why? Why? Why wouldn't people finally freak out about this? Why would people finally take it seriously? Would you tell them to calm down? What? How? Sorry. How are you supposed to be calm about the end of the goddamn world? Yeah, exactly. I'm supposed to be also measured about the apocalypse. Get the fuck out of here! I know, I know, and especially when something that is as like much of a landmark as the Amazon, and and something that like people, it's like okay, look, people understand that the Amazon is environmentally important. Like, let's just let them go with that. You know? What yeah. I mean? <laughs> Like what? Actually, what is the danger of them thinking it's worse than it is? I do not know. I do like not somebody, know. please explain that to me. Like I, oh, I just no, don't. We might act too much. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's no danger in thinking it's worse than it is, um, unless that leads you to nihilism. But that wasn't what was happening with the Amazon fire discussion. No. Another way I see this like democratization showing up is like. I I see a lot of folks who can't really see the movement beyond the big green group, little green group divide, and we we are beho- we are beyond that, y'all. I'm really sorry to break it to you, but we are really beyond that dichotomy and that framework. And the more that we like dig into this, like I see this a lot where there's like a big event and people are talking about like the friction between the big green groups and the little green groups, or even you know among the big green groups or among the little green groups, and folks are and and like the new people to the movement are like, what the fuck are y'all talking about? I don't care. I want to stop climate change. I don't give a shit about y'all's friction. And like you like show up to these events and like, I I can't tell if you're working at an organization or you're part of a gang because like you want to fight so-and-so because they got beef with your organization from 20 years ago before any of y'all were fucking born or even in the workforce. Um, like, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, there has definitely been shitty things that have happened between, you know, different organizations. Um, but I don't think that that is our major talking point anymore. And I don't, it, it sort of, it reinforces this idea that in order to be part of this movement, in order to be valid, to have a voice that you have to work at a certain place, you have to have a certain t-shirt and that's bullshit. And we have to let that go. And like, I don't give a shit if you work at CVS. I don't care if you work at the CVS. Sierra Club. I don't give a fuck if you work at NRDC. If you want a livable planet, you're welcome in this movement and you're welcome to speak. So, yeah, 
Yeah, another theme from 2019 um, was that the environmental movement, the climate movement, got called to the mat on its racism in a really profound way, in a really like a way that I think is like irreversible. Um, I think yeah. it's a conversation we absolutely needed to have um, when yes. it had been like just so, so overdue. And by overdue, I don't mean that <laughs> yeah. people hadn't tried to have this conversation before. People absolutely no. had, I think. And, and this is the root of a lot of the friction between big green groups and little green groups, to be quite honest. Um, because people of color have been relegated to, you know, the EJ table, right? Like, let right. the let the right. big white men go do the climate negotiations, and then y'all yeah. can deal with the backlash because what we decide is definitely going to create some problems for y'all. Um, and you can deal with that mm-hmm. at the EJ table. Um, yes, which is like incredibly shitty, right? But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it like it all got called out in this big overarching way in 2019. I feel that's totally true. And I mean, it felt like a damn breaking moment. Like just yeah, there were so many stories. And they were coming from every corner, too, which I think is a really important thing because um, there has been, like you said, there's been like, okay, like you can you can stay over here in the EJ corner and you can talk about, you know, specific things like um, water pipes and heating insulation and, you know, just like things like that. But this was, it was like, there were so many stories and they were uh, from so many different sides of the issue that it was impossible to ignore. And, and like, it, it was so overdue. I mean, like this, this conversation has been happening for decades about mm-hmm. racism in the movement in much the same way that like it's been happening about racism in in the feminist movement for yeah. as long, you know, yeah. that, like, and I do feel like this was like the year that we really had this reckoning and it was, mm-hmm. it was like mm-hmm. so due. Yeah. 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 Because so, I mean, we kicked off the year <laughs> yeah. with this, this yeah. groundbreaking study, right? Yeah. Yeah, this really, I mean, like fascinating and uh, groundbreaking report that found that actually the Native American genocide had kicked off climate change, you know, in some ways that this large scale depopulation resulted in vast tracts of agricultural land being left untended, allowing the land to become overgrown with trees and other new vegetation. The regrowth soaked up enough CO2 from the atmosphere to actually cool the planet with the average temperature dropping by 0.15 degrees Celsius in the late 1500s and early 1600s. This was a a study by scientists at University College in London. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, it was like, oh, yeah, duh. Like, of course. Of course it did. There were multiple impacts from colonization, you know? Right. But also, human beings are part of an ecosystem. You can't just, like, go off killing thousands of people and, like, don't shit work. Like, shit just keeps going the way it's supposed to go. That's not how ecosystems Yes. work. It doesn't make any fucking sense yeah. to me that people didn't yeah. know that. I know. I just, I feel like that study got sent around and like written about and talked about a lot in a, in a very useful and productive way. And I, and I also was like, yes, great. Can we continue to talk more about indigenous issues and climate change, please? Which did really start to happen this year in a way it that did. I had, I, I have not seen in previous years. So that was, yeah. that was good to see. 
it got folded into the mainstream narrative because yes. clearly indigenous folks have always been at the yeah. forefront of, of the fight for climate. And they've always, mm -hmm. um, as far as I, I know, I've never seen it talked about, you know, in indigenous circles, which like, obviously I'm not indigenous. I'm not in all the circles, but, um, I've never, heard an indigenous narrative about climate change that isn't interconnected to everything else. And the idea of separating it out, from what I can tell, sounds like just incredibly stupid, which makes sense to me. Like, it doesn't make sense to me to separate it out from anything else. It just seems like innate that dirt is connected to everything, right? Like, everything comes from it, therefore it's connected to everything. And I, I also notice that the real racist roots of both the climate crisis and the climate and environmental movements was really just called out very explicitly. There was a great story in Vice from Julian Brave Noisecat about, you know, the racist roots of the climate movement. And I think there was a, a line in there, like the environmental movement's roots are closer to that of a safari trophy hunt than they are to totally. a social justice movement, which is like totally true. Absolutely. Uh, Glad a good this. point of clarity actually we should we should clarify right now you're not white right my i mean i'm i'm mixed race my dad is mexican my mom's white and my dad has this whole like very complicated past where like he didn't find out that the guy who he thought was his dad wasn't really his dad until much later in his life and there's like there's like a lot of like weird identity shit in my in my dad's past also like that's why my last name is Westervelt but anyway yeah. yeah so that's like a that's like a whole thing too where people will assume that I'm white you know I'm very white passing my name's Amy Westervelt it's not like I read as super Latina or anything but that does often give me a window into racism that I think people would otherwise keep quiet from me. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. I remember you were saying to me once, like, you can tell how racist someone is by, like, how likely they are to suspect that you're not white. Right? Like, yes. More like, there's been times where I've been in parts of Texas where kind of white Southern Belle type ladies will just start speaking, like, really terrible Spanish to me. <laughs> Can you understand okay. what they're trying to say? <laughs> oh, my God. They're like, hola, por favor, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, okay. Geez. Um <laughs> Good grief. Good grief. I know. Yeah. And I mean, Ugh, yeah. yeah. I also, like, yeah. in case you don't know or can't tell from my voice, I'm black. Very visible. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. Scary on my listening. face. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I, know, I had a really interesting conversation with a black woman friend of mine about this, like maybe a year or so ago, where we were talking about this and she was like, well, you know, you also have to like think about how the privilege of being someone who passes as like whatever people kind of attribute to you. Because she's like, you know, when I walk into a room, there's no, no one's confused. Like I'm a dark yeah. skinned black woman, you know? <laughs> well, when I walk into interviews, people right are confused. <laughs> People are confused yes. because Mariana East Hegler, you definitely think you're getting like a school marm from, you know, like a, a definitely like a white lady school marm. And then I walk in the door like, hi. People right. are like, they're like, you're oh, if you right? take your yeah. ass back to Harlem. Um, 
But anyway, yeah. So I feel like in 2019, this myth that people of color don't care about the climate just died a very overdue death. And I, you know, I think it started to become clear that it's not not true and it never has been true that people of color don't care about climate change or don't care about the environment. What actually is true is that we don't care for environmentalists, right? Like that's a very different story. Um, And this year we're like, I'm not going to be relegated to any specific table. I'm not going to be relegated to any sidelines. Like we don't only want to be part of this movement. We want to be leaders and we want to be recognized for the leadership Mm -hmm. that we have shown for generations. And we want it recognized that we didn't create this fucking mess and y'all need to quit with this we shit. So yeah, I, you know, there's Julian's piece, which we already mentioned. I noticed this a lot with the Gen Z activists of talking about Mm -hmm. like the racist roots of the climate crisis, as well as the racist roots Mm -hmm. of the environmental movement. There was also a piece in the New York Times by Heather McTier-Tony that I really loved. It was Mm -hmm. called Black Women Are Leaders in the Climate Movement. And I just wanted to read a little bit of that because she really talks about the stereotype thing. It was so good, that piece. Yeah, it really was. Despite stereotypes of a lack of interest in environmental issues among African Americans, Black women, particularly Southern Black women, are no strangers to environmental activism. Many of us live in communities with polluted air and water, work in industries from housekeeping to hairdressing where we are surrounded by toxic chemicals and have limited food options that are often impacted by pesticides. Environmentalism, in other words, is a Black issue. Rarely do we see or hear Black voices as part of national conversations about policy solutions, the green economy, or clean energy. We're relegated to providing a comment on environmental justice issues like the water crisis in Flint, or where the faces and photos with candidates need to show they're inclusive when talking about climate solutions. Mm. So, So yeah, like she opens this piece talking about watching MSNBC where they've got like three black women or three black people talking about the climate crisis. And then, you know, the one white lady up there goes like, unfortunately, this just isn't an issue for for most black people. It's just such a niche issue. And she's sitting at home watching it with beta breath like, what the fuck? We're in the room. We're the bulk of this panel. So like this stereotype, like even as it's very clearly like shown on this panel that people of color care about this issue, you're still being told like you don't care about the issue, which is like it's such a weird gaslighting thing of like the media telling you you don't care about the thing that you care about. Ugh, it's gross. So kind of like following along in that same vein, Tara Hauska in LitHub wrote a really great piece about what she called what listening means in a time of climate crisis. And this is another good example of a great piece from an indigenous person about the way that indigenous people have consistently been erased from the climate discussion as well, which honestly, like there's this whole extra lens to that that I find really gross where like, we don't actually include you in any real way, but we want you to be like our tokens of relationship to nature. Mm-hmm. It's just, ugh, I don't know. Like I know I've seen so many 
environmentalists be like really into kind of like Native American culture in some weird yeah. way, but not actually include indigenous people. They want them through. Yeah, they want them to be a mascot. Yeah. Total mascot. Yes. Totally it's really fucked up. Totally. It is really fucked up. Yeah. So Tara is great. She writes all kinds of good things and is well worth a follow on Twitter too. Here's an excerpt from from this piece. A nameless indigenous matriarch speaks of connection and stewardship while a crowd wipes away momentary romantic tears and posts her speech on social media with a link to the latest round of climate statistics. Her words rivet your heart, but there is no readily consumable solution there. To put her words into practice would first necessitate giving her words credence and substantive consideration in the mind of the listener. The statistics hold the answers we need, or so we are taught. We live in an era in which the planet is literally burning around us. The glaciers are rapidly melting, and Mother Nature is slamming us with disaster after disaster. How logical is it, then, to employ the same models that got us here to now win in this fight for our lives? It seems more than a disservice and outright destructive that the stories and solutions of those on the foremost lines of the greatest threat facing humanity are either absent altogether or told by someone else. Authenticity is one component. Efficacy is another. The voices are there if we listen. Our mother's forgotten voice, our shared survival, wait in the wings. Ooh, she's so poetic. So true, too. Like, I hate, I mean, you and I have talked about this, I feel like, in almost every episode, that this, like, consistent thing of, like, thinking that the same thinking that got us into this mess will get us out of it is just Mm -hmm. so ridiculous. Yeah, and we'll keep saying it because it's fucking ridiculous. Because it hasn't gone away yet. I know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So I I highly recommend reading this whole piece because I, I love that she frames it around listening because what came across very clearly to me it's not that like we haven't talked about this before it's not that indigenous people are new to talking about this issue is that you're new to listening to us and it's critical that's very true because it's not even because yeah and and that that really is that's like the ticket to really moving it past kind of tokenism because you often see a native person invited to speak at a climate event what you don't often see is their actual framework and solutions being applied (laughs) right it's like uh it's like a formality Mm -hmm. when they're invited to speak it's it's really sick so yeah i mean i'm really glad that she wrote this piece and and put this narrative out there in such a poetic way like she's a really great writer Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in line with this you know being called out on deification so as the student movement really took off this year and the student movement you know gen z is one of is the most diverse generation in america yet and they are their movement is really interracial i think that their movement having such great diversity is really what killed this myth that people of color don't care about the climate crisis. Um, But the media has not really told their story in a great way um, because Mm -hmm. they've glommed on to Greta in a way that I think is really problematic, both for the larger movement and for Greta herself. So, and and I've talked about this quite vocally. And she said that too, right? I mean, like she's, she's like one of the people that has said this the most. It's fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's creepy, honestly. Um, First of all, I want to talk about why I think it's harmful for Greta herself because 
there is nothing about Greta Thunberg that says attention hog to me. <laughs> like it is very clear to me that Greta herself does not enjoy the spotlight. It is very clear to me that she feels like this is the price I have to pay to deal with climate change. And she's willing to do pretty much anything to deal with climate change. So she deals with it. But setting her up as this savior is way too much pressure to put on any one person. And it's not fair. And it sets her up for failure and it sets her up for just like all the psychological stress that comes with that. And it sort of makes, it creates this illusion that someone else has it. And that's, that's really problematic. And usually when someone's set up as a savior, it's so that someone else can crucify them. And so all this venom comes to Greta. Like I've been retweeted by Greta. It is not fun. You get trolled like crazy. And so like, imagine what she's dealing with on her own, right? Like, with the platform that she has. We talked a little bit about how Greta herself has tried to model how to be a good ally and, you know, hats off to her for that. It just really should not be all on her shoulders. And I I worry about her own well-being in the midst of that. And at the same time, I'm worried about the erasure of all of these activists of color who have been doing this Mm -hmm. for before Greta, like zero hours started before Greta did her school strike. And there are plenty of others. Um, Mithili Sampan Kumar wrote this really great story in the New Republic about climate activists going back generations at the Mm -hmm. UN Climate Conference. Mm -hmm. Because this is not new at all. Like Greta, I'm really glad that she's being heard, but she should be heard as part of a chorus and not as a solo singer necessarily. Like she really is truly remarkable, but you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I totally. Well, another great way that Greta has, you know, modeled how to be a good ally is when she testified before Congress, she invited two activists of color to be up on stage with her. And when she's been speaking at, when I saw her speak at the UN, I actually did not see her speak at the UN because she, you know, she was on this panel and her first introduction was like, I'm not going to speak because I have a speaking slot tomorrow and I'm going to cede my time to my fellow panelists who do not have that platform, right? So she has really done a great job of of seeding her platform to others who wouldn't otherwise have it. But the media fetishization of her is, I think, really dangerous. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the people who was early to um, this problem with fetishizing and deifying Greta was uh, Rebecca Solnit. Um, and she wrote this great piece in Lit Hub, again, where she talks about... Um, this bigger problem of this hero fetish. It's called when the hero is the problem. Our largest problems won't be solved by heroes. They'll be solved if they are by movements, coalitions, civil society. The climate movement, for example, has been first of all a mass effort. I was thinking about all this when I was thinking about Sweden's Greta Thunberg a truly remarkable young woman, someone who has catalyzed climate action across the world. But the focus on her may obscure the many remarkable young people before her who have stood up and passionately spoken about climate change. Her words mattered because we responded, and we responded in part because the media elevated her as they had not elevated her predecessors. Mm -hmm. Um... 
Yeah, so I, I I really love that Rebecca called this out like pretty early. I think this piece is from like April, like the middle of the year. And I feel like the larger conversation has since kind of corrected itself. I've seen a lot of people who were like, I saw them pretty fetishizing and glomming on the Greta um, over the summer have started to expand their, their vision to see the rest of the movement as equally valid to her. So I'm, I'm really glad to see that happen. Um, another piece I just want to mention is Nyla Burton, um, did a great piece in Vox where she interviewed a lot of the youth activists of color and, you know, talked about their stories and why it's important to bring them, uh, into the larger conversation. So I'm, I'm glad to see more, uh, journalists taking on that story and seeing more outlets publish about it. Okay, another big thing that happened in 2019 was a big shift in the language used to talk about climate change. So The Guardian changed its preferred term from climate change to climate breakdown or climate emergency. And then climate emergency was named Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year, which is like a pretty big deal, right? I yeah. Mean, I think, I feel like that's, that's big. That's um, a big deal. Climate's... Yeah, I think so, too. Climate Strike was named Word of the Year by Collins Dictionary, also a pretty big deal. So definitely, like, there's this whole thing. And the reason, I mean, on top of the fact that that's just generally, like, you know, evidence that this is becoming a a top-of-mind topic for people, I think um, the other big reason that that's important is that, of course, for decades, the fossil fuel industry has controlled the language that we use to describe climate change. So, you know, the term uh, global warming was first used, and actually it was a... um, an industry slash Republican messaging guy, uh, Luntz, who came up with climate yeah. change as sort of like a more neutral term uh, that seemed, you know, more natural. <laughs> the fact that this finally changed to something that is actually more accurate and a little more urgent um, is, is a big deal. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really thrilled to see that. Um, and I think it's, it had a big influence on the larger um, coverage of it. Um, I've yeah. seen a lot more journalists get more urgent with the way that they're they're writing about it. It feels like the gloves are off. Um, yeah. <laughs> like you don't have to be neutral on it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Totally. Like, and, and that's the thing is like that's how important language is. And the mm-hmm. fossil fuel guys knew that. That's why they messed with it in the first place. So like exactly. so the fact that the – you know, we've kind of taken it back as a big, a big step forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a big evidence of this is um, the way that the climate community has covered, um, or the climate writing community rather, has covered these big scientific reports. Um, I yeah. saw a huge shift in the way that um, yes. these things were written about this year. Um, yes, totally. So totally. In, yeah. in May, the UN released this big biodiversity report that just in a nutshell revealed that we're pretty much fucking up. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really important. I hear a lot of environmental advocates um, stress this. 
fossil fuel climate change is not the only way that we're wreaking havoc on the world. Like we're also the biodiversity crisis in which we're just like killing off animals all willy-nilly is just really dangerous for us. Biodiversity is not a nice to have for the sake of humanity. Like we need animals to live because we're part of an ecosystem. Like, come on, all these things connect to each other. Mm -hmm. So there was a... (laughs) (laughs) Just for headline of the year, Eric Levitz Mm -hmm. published this piece in New York Magazine. And this headline is a work of art. The headline Mm -hmm. is, humanity is about to kill one million species in a globe-spanning murder-suicide. People, that's how you talk about a fucking report. (laughs) That is a headline for the fucking ages. Whoever came up this with this headline, whether it's Eric or some other editor at New York Magazine, I hope you got a yeah. cupcake or a latte or whatever makes you happy that day. Because that is a <laughs> fucking beautiful headline. A murder-suicide. the hell out exactly of, like, researchers warn about biodiversity. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I, I don't think you would have seen a headline like that just uh, even yep. last year um, or a couple yeah. of years ago because, you know, you mm-hmm. kind of felt like it had to be measured when you talked about scientific reports. And now it's like, nope, fuck it. We done broke the emergency glass. It's go time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in in kind of a similar vein, the IPCC, the IPCC came out with some pr- like really just a freaking stream of depressing reports in 2019. Um, actually, and I, and I think that the fact that the, the IPCC, so the International Panel on Climate Change, no, which Intergovernmental is. Panel on Climate Change, which is a, a global consortium of climate scientists who come together to um, look at all of the available data on climate change and write um, assessments um, they do major assessments every four years, and then they they do interim reports on specific areas. So, like in this case, they did one on uh, the impacts on land usage. That came out in August. Um, it had a much more inclusive committee writing process that allowed for more input from developing countries, which had a lot to say. But also, I think the fact that the IPCC has just have taken the gloves off, you know, yeah. like they've always been incredibly conservative and formal and whatever, but like have really started to be like, guys, wake up, we got to do something. Um, and that has also given... Yeah you know, journalists and policymakers and activists and everybody else licensed to kind of be like, okay, like, let's be more real about this. Um, so on this land report, Robinson Meyer in, at the Atlantic took this like extremely wonky report and turned it into just total poetry in a piece called <laughs> yeah. This Land is the Only Land There Is. It was mm-hmm. so good. Yeah, it was. In some ways, this is the most unavoidably political document that the IPCC has ever published. Its report last year on the dangers of global warming beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius called for an unprecedented transformation in the globe's energy system. It demanded a rapid switch to carbon-free energy systems. But talking about the energy system is, in this context, relatively easy. No one's ever gone to war over electric cars or renewable portfolio standards, but land is different. It is home. 
and the possibility of home. The relationship between people and land is the most treasured and unresolved idea in global politics. Chemically speaking, of course, we are mostly water, but everything we love about ourselves is solid and therefore made of land. These 52 million grid squares cannot only service our needs. They are all the land, period. They must also hold the vast, lovely, unknowable thing that we call nature. Every shady spot, every mountain stream, every sand dune. The IPCC authors call this, somewhat dryly, biodiversity and ecosystem services. Every grain of rice and cobalt mine, every sidewalk square and platypus has to be somewhere on that 52 million. Ugh, I'm like jealous that someone can write about that report in particular with that much verve. Kudos yeah. to you, Rob. Yeah. 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 Robinson did a, a, an amazing job with this. I mean, I yeah. I was not expecting this when I opened up a, a, an article that was like seven major takeaways from the IPCC report. And then it was mm-hmm. like riveting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, yeah, I just think really that this good. shows real growth on on the part of the climate yeah. writing community, and I'm yeah. really encouraged by it. And I want to see more and more of this type of interpretation in 2020. segment of the show that we've been calling our foundational pieces. And what we mean by that is that these are the pieces of climate writing that really stood out to us as pushing the envelope or changing the conversation in a really fundamental way. Um, Game changers, if you will. So we're going to start off with a piece that came out relatively recently. It's called Under the Weather, which like great fucking headline. I don't know if if, um, Ashley Sanders or Ash Sanders, the writer, came up with that headline or not, but it's freaking great. I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, man, that's a Mm -hmm. good name. Why haven't Um, I thought of that before? (laughs) I know. I know. And it is like really the most comprehensive piece we've seen on climate grief. Um, Yeah, that's not like a journal article. It's not a journal article. It's not just reporting. It's not just a personal essay. It's kind of a combination of both. And it came out in The Believer. Um, I actually happen to know Ash because we're working together on another show and was on a a reporting trip with her when she was working on this piece. And so we had a long car ride and she was talking about all things climate and and like eco-anxiety and climate grief and all this stuff while she was working on this piece. So I was super excited to see it come out. And it's just, it's really, really, really great. I love, I love how she does this thing of like weaving together, you know, personal essay and reporting. So you've Mm -hmm. got moments like this one that I'm going to read that are super, super personal. So she says, I knew what I wanted. I wanted a world that would last through the century. I wanted a world where my existence didn't mean the end for others. But barring that, I really wanted just one thing to grieve to say this is unbearable and to have people to try to bear it with. Ah, 
like I so feel that, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then she mixes it with these really great, very well-reported, but also well-written explanations of all this stuff and like how people are trying to process it like this. As a philosopher, Albrecht determined to identify and name this condition. The word he came up with was solastalgia, a portmanteau word of the Latin solus, which means abandonment and loneliness, and nostalgia. Nostalgia has not always had the warm and fuzzy connotations it does now. When it was first used in the 17th century, it described a diagnosable illness that afflicted people who were far from home but could not return. Soldiers were particularly susceptible, as were people forced into migration by conflict, colonization, and slavery. The cure, it was thought, was simply to return home and be soothed by familiarity. Otherwise, the sufferer's distress would continue, even to the point of death. To Albrecht, if nostalgia was a sickness caused by the displacement brought about by 17th century globalization, solastalgia was its 21st century counterpart. That is like, it's fascinating, like the whole thing that like the research of, of, you know, what some of these philosophers and psychologists are doing to better understand and address climate grief is really interesting. Ash's Mm -hmm. own personal journey is really interesting. It's just like, it's a great piece. And I think like, um, yeah, like I said, is like, is, is probably the best and most comprehensive piece on climate grief that I've seen. And climate grief is such a big topic and issue right now. It really is. Um, and yeah. it, this piece is really long, um, but it doesn't yeah, feel that it way. <laughs> it doesn't. Um, it totally moves. Yeah. Yeah, it really moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying not to be jealous that you're working with her on another show, but I'll process It's that not later. a climate show, actually. It's not even a climate show. It's about a um, like a, a fundamentalist religious cult. Um, oh. So. I mean, totally different world, which actually has a lot to do with climate change. I have to say, like, I'm I'm very intrigued by how these people um, like deal with the idea that the world is always about to end. Like, they've constantly like this this one guy that we talked to was like, oh yeah, people here have really bad credit because like every five years we think the world is going to end, so people just like go wild and buy a bunch of random shit. <laughs> I was like, that's so different from how like climate grief fills yeah no well i feel like a lot of folks um you know do that with the doomsday preppers like you know they think nuclear war is going to happen so they like spend all this money to stock their bunkers Mm -hmm. and you know like y2k and all of that um yeah totally totally yeah which is actually a a great segue into our next foundational (laughs) exactly what this is exactly what i was going to say um this is from um so another, I, I'm quite on record as this being one of my favorite pieces of the year. This is from um, Hayes Brown. It was in the outline. Um, and the title is The End Times Are Here and I'm at Target. Uh, and this is just like a really beautiful articulation of what it feels like to be alive right now. And to like, you know, how impotent it feels in the face of climate change. How how just like heartbreaking the normalcy of it all is, but at the same time, like nothing is ever going to be normal again. He's, he, he opens up talking about like all of these doomsday cults and like how people have been so sure that the world is ending before, but now like, you know, there's like mad evidence. Um, so I'm just mm-hmm, going to like mm-hmm. go ahead and read this very long excerpt because it was really hard to pick.
We have a preponderance of evidence at this point, and yet the very existence of anthropogenic climate change is still considered something to debate. Meanwhile, you, me, the other New Yorkers shuffling through the target around me, your neighbors, wherever you're reading this, are somehow not stockpiling non-perishables and fleeing the coast in search of high ground ahead of the looming end, like you'd expect in a proper end times. Instead, we're just trying to get through the next day or week as we suffer through the early throes of our collective demise, hoping that we might be wrong about the whole thing. Climate scientists have a body of evidence that no other civil has ever produced and yet is still falling on deaf ears. And in the United States and in growing numbers abroad, powerful people have used a small fraction of their resources to stifle that message further. They deliver sermons of their own, telling the gathered throngs that the prophets are liars and the stars are being read wrong and Cassandra is a woman and a fool. It's a scheme, a plot, a drive to take away your rights and their taxes and profits. The political will to avert Ragnarok just isn't there. Even without her efforts, the church of climate change's weakness is clear in his followers. Once you're convinced the earth is rapidly heating and there's only a little time left to stop it, then you're in. You believe. You're Paul on the road from Damascus, ready to spread the word and call out the sinners who dare doubt the newest testaments. But what kind of devotee secretly hopes that their principles of faith are wrong? What true believer wishes deep down inside that things will actually be fine in the end, so let's just go back to not worrying about it and enjoying things exactly as they are now? Here's hoping we're predicting what we're predicting doesn't come true after all. Isn't exactly a religion likely to retain members, let alone gain apostles? Maybe it's the whole rebirth thing that this particular looming doomsday is missing. There's no better place awaiting us in the gospel according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Our struggle and suffering and the seven seals opening make an appearance in their revelation. That could be why it's so difficult to convert true zealots from the casual climate believer, let alone the entirely unconvinced. What's the point of an apocalypse without a rapture? The IPCC should consider adding one, shifting focus to the new utopia that could arise if only if we repent from our sinful ways. I mean, I so agree with this. Like, I I do feel like one of the biggest um, narratives missing from the climate landscape is the, like... What next? What next? And also, like, that it's not... It doesn't have to all be bad and all be sacrifice and all be, like... You know what I mean? That, That, like, actually um, consuming less doesn't hurt that much. Um, (laughs) you know, that, that community is, is quite nice. Um, (laughs) so uh, part of um, the reason I, I picked this piece as foundational is because, um, I think what, uh, something we saw a lot of in 2019 or, or we're starting to see a lot of is people from outside the ranks of the traditional climate movement are, are talking about climate more. Um, and Hayes is not a traditional climate writer. I think this might be one of his first pieces he's ever written about climate change. And, you know, we saw that also with, um, you know, there was this piece in in the New Yorker from Jonathan Franzen that um, talked about climate where, you know, it's, it's hard to read that and not think that his main message is basically we're screwed, so screw it. Um, which, you know, really had the climate community up in arms. Like people were very upset about this piece. Um, and Hayes, 
And his piece doesn't advocate for any particular action. Um, and I actually had a lot of people react to, I saw a lot of people reacting to this piece being like, he's basically saying to give up. And like, actually, he's not saying to do anything because he doesn't know what to do. And we have to get out of this idea that everyone who writes about climate has to have a solution that they're advocating for. Because we're at this point now where everyone is thinking about this. Everyone is going to be talking about this. And everyone is not a climate advocate. Everyone is not going to have solutions. That doesn't mean they don't get to talk about it. Um, so it, it, we've got to like start making space for those sorts of voices. But even in that, I think there's a lot to be learned from this, from how an outsider sees climate change and how an outsider sees the climate movement. Because I really do think there's something to this idea of like, what is the point of an apocalypse without a rapture? Right. Like right. what is right. Like, it is hard to get excited about something that even the people who are into it d- hope is not true. I know. Well, that's the thing that I loved. Like, I really loved this piece, too. And and um, actually, especially because I happened to be working on this project about this um, religious group that has a doomsday component to it and um, and had been thinking a lot about, like, why is it that these people who believe the world is ending um, have some amount of, like, acceptance of that and, like, actually see it as not... Um, not an end, like a mm-hmm. uh, transition. <laughs> and, then, and then like all the climate people I know, um, you know, are like, we need to really gird our loins for, you know, like, I just, I feel like it's like, okay, well, if the options are apocalypse or a really like shitty future in which we do act on climate, like neither of those is, a, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no wonder we're stuck in inaction. Cause like, there's nothing appealing there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I liked that, like, he kind of put voice to that in a, in a way that was compelling and, and also just, like, a pleasure to read, too. It's really well yeah. written. Yeah, it is really beautiful. Um, okay, so another piece that I, I wanted to talk about um, was this op-ed in The Guardian, um, and its title is Delhi's Toxic Politicians Must Be Held to Account for This Deadly Pollution. So I don't know how many folks saw this story about, um, well, I, I don't know. I felt like it was pretty unavoidable that the air pollution in Delhi um, this year reached really apocalyptic levels. Like I saw folks, um, there was like an oxygen bar where like you could pay a certain amount and then you could like inhale clean air. Like it was like, it was a hookah bar or something. Um, like it's, it's the most dystopian shit I've ever seen in my life. This woman, Aruna Chandrasekhar, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Apologies if I didn't. Um, she wrote this beautiful op-ed in the Guardian and I just wanted to read a little bit from it. Fly out of Delhi and you can see it. A band of gray smog so thick it blots out the sun. Tune in carefully and you'll hear it too. A subtle symphony of snorts, coughs, and wheezing. To the untrained nose, Delhi's air is a potent bouquet. High notes of charred biomass mingle with sulfurous remnants of Diwali bonfires with base notes of subsidized diesel, burned plastic, and coal. I moved there in early 2017. 
To me, a relative outsider from Southeast India who spent her 20s trying to draw attention to the injustices of India's coal belt, Uda Delhi, smelt like a bit like justice. It was only fair that the city's most powerful and privileged breathed a fraction of what they extracted from communities who relied on land and forests. I hope that this toxic air would waft down the same corridors where environmental safeguards have been rapidly undermined by the Modi government. I was wrong. Jet-setting politicians almost never shared the same airspace. They, kept, they keep office windows closed with air purifiers on. Barely a year of bloodshot eyes and blocked sinuses later, I left Delhi, conscious of the privilege to be able to do so. For my wisest counselors, the city's auto rickshaw drivers who didn't wear masks and chain-smoking environmentalists, leaving for good was not an option. So, um, wow. yeah, I, I talked to Aruna a little bit about this piece. Um, and she, you know, was saying that she originally, it was just going to be like a data dump, like your usual op-ed from an environmentalist, which is like just the stats, just the facts. And, you know, mm-hmm. she was like, mm-hmm. actually, I think I need to put, um, some emotion in here. I think I need to put some imagery in here. And I, mm. I think that's just like such a notable shift, you know, and I think it, it shows, how the broader conversation is is changing and we're realizing that like the you need to make people feel it you need to make me like you need to make me feel like I'm breathing this air um so yeah I thought she did a a really really beautiful job here and I, I hope to see more of that in 2020 and so i i'm gonna put you on the spot uh for my next foundational piece um and i know Mm -hmm. we already talked about this on our first episode but i think that your essay the case for climate rage was really foundational for 2019 i'm sorry amy i think that this amy this (laughs) this essay really (gasps) changed the conversation (laughs) and validated (laughs) anger in a way that like it just it 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 can't be undone. Um, after this mm. essay, I started to see a lot more people like embrace their anger and weaponize their anger in the face of climate change in a way that I, I hadn't seen before, actually. Um, and, and this essay, the research for it was the first time that we had ever spoke, actually. Um, you mm-hmm. reached out That's to right. <laughs> me about it. Cause that's I'm, right. That's I've right. About anger I was a like, bit. Hey, I'm working on this piece and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. I forgot that we had that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, well, so, I hope it like helped people feel like they could be more angry. Cause like, yes, I think it's a useful emotion. <laughs> yeah. Like I started to see, and I'm sure, you know, I think the conversation was moving in this direction too, but I think that your piece like really like close the book on whether or not anger was a valid emotion. Um, and I, you know, I saw other pieces really dig into this, like Kate Aronoff's piece on climate sad boys and um, Emily Atkins newsletter Rahita is written with all sorts of anger and it's, it's been really effective. It's really resonated with people. So I've got a long ass excerpt buckle up. <laughs> um <laughs> So you start off with these quotes from from different interviewees. Um, When I started learning more about climate change and what's coming, I started running, you know, so I'd be ready when the apocalypse comes. I barely know your kids and I feel like I would jump in front of a bus to stop this shit. I want to see those fossil fuel fuckers burn. 
I didn't create this problem and I didn't benefit from it. That's you with your AC and your green lawn and your freeway that cuts through my neighborhood. I'm trying to make sure my husband gets home safe every night and that my children are whole, but that doesn't make the problem go away. These are the sorts of things I hear from women, and especially from women of color, women who are deeply knowledgeable, not only about the science and the history of climate change, but also about how these things intersect with systemic racial and gender inequality. Women who are having emotional responses to what they're seeing today. Arguments for civility, for forgiveness, for we're all in this together, for preservation of the status quo with just a few tweaks won't keep us all from going over the cliff. In climate change, many of these elite white men might be experiencing their very first brush with imposed change, with a force beyond their control upending their lives. That might make them particularly ill-equipped to envision what's next, let alone lead us there. The story of climate change, both its history and its future, needs to be told by people who are already experiencing injustice and disempowerment, people who are justifiably angry at the way the system works. And some of those stories are beginning to be told. So take a bow. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really is beautiful. I think, you know, you really just broke ground with this essay and I I saw a big welcoming response to it um, on social yeah, media and even outside of too. that. Like, people referenced this essay a lot. Uh, in fact, when we were asking on Twitter for people to send us their favorite pieces from 2019, so many people sent this one in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I did see that too. I honestly, like, I was really expecting at least like a mixed reaction and and like probably a negative one. And I was very pleasantly surprised that it was mostly people were like, thank you. You know, like, yeah, that's what I've been saying. Because like, I think actually a lot of people, and especially women were being policed for being angry. And it's fucking annoying. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. We have to be positive. Yeah. Like, actually, I think being angry at people committing genocide is pretty fucking positive, to be quite honest. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I'm also going to put you on the spot because okay. I... And, like, I regretted after our intro episode that we didn't get to talk about your After the Storm essay. And I actually think this is a perfect place to talk about it because I thought it was super foundational in that it used sort of the climate lens of today to look back at what was clearly a climate disaster of the past. And I think that, like, that you opened sort of a gateway to people doing that more. And I hope we see more of it in the huh. year ahead because I do think that kind of the further out we get from these uh, disasters, the more people A, are able to sort of, you know, use the knowledge that they're gaining to to understand things that happened in the past and to process things and whatever. But I also think that like, you know, we're just like, we may be, you know, in the same way that people kind of understand trauma in pieces and bits as they process it. I think that's happening with a lot of, of climate disasters. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think we're going to see more of this sort of re-understanding of past events through the climate lens. Um, and I, I think that your piece has has a lot to do with that. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is a long excerpt, but I just, I think it's it's so great. And this is the part that like, especially gave me chills. So I want to read it. Um, okay. It's so okay. good. It's so good. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, this showed up in Guernica. Again, it's called After the Storm. Mm -hmm. Because Katrina's aftermath was so horrific, we forget how utterly strange she was as a storm. We forget that she made landfall in Florida before sweeping back out to sea to gather more strength for the Gulf Coast. We forget that by the time she made landfall, she had weakened from a Category 5 to a Category 3, but what Katrina sacrificed in strength, she more than made up for in size. At the time, she was the largest hurricane ever to hit the United States, affecting millions of people over approximately 90,000 square miles. And that was just in the short term. Just before the electricity went out for what would be a week, we saw on the television that Katrina was covering the entire state of Mississippi, right down to the Delta. We forget the tornado outbreak she spawned as she traveled over land. 57 tornadoes over the space of eight states, from central Mississippi to Pennsylvania. With 18 tornadoes across Georgia in a single day, she far exceeded the state's previous daily tornado record of two. The other thing often forgotten, but which I can never forget, was that Katrina descended the day after the 50th anniversary of the murder of Emmett Till. If you are Black, and especially if you grew up in the South, the name Emmett Till brought immediate, arresting, gruesome images to mind. The name sank to the bottom of your stomach like a bag of rocks. Or like the cotton gin fan that weighed down his barely pubescent body to make it surrender to the, ha to the Tallahatchie River. The anniversary was the biggest news story in Mississippi before the storm. How far had we come, or had we stood still? What comes next? There, in my three-generational home of Black Southerners, I couldn't, I couldn't not think about the anniversary, even then, even with the storm overhead. I remember the meteorologist explaining how hurricanes start off the coast of Africa and gather strength as they cross the Atlantic, following almost exactly the route of slave ships. I wondered if Katrina was really a 14-year-old boy named Emmett. Yeah. God, it's so good. <laughs> Dang, girl. It, like, it's one of your more personal pieces, right? Because it has to oh, do with it's your definitely grandfather the most personal. and your family. Yeah. And yeah. 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 And I, I don't think I could have done this without a really skillful editor. So shout out to the folks at, at Guernica who really helped me push this baby through. I felt like it was important to tell the story because it... um. You know, Mississippi really gets overshadowed when we talk about Katrina because what happened in New Orleans was so incredibly horrific. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what happened in New Orleans, quite honestly, was human error, um, mm -hmm. like almost completely and totally. And what happened in Mississippi was really the the ground zero of the storm. Like I remember waking up that right. morning and hearing that the storm had shifted away from New Orleans and was heading straight to Mississippi. I mean, they're close together. So it's not like that big of a shift. And I, on the one hand, there's fewer people in Mississippi. So that kind of makes you feel like a sense of relief. And the other thing to understand about New Orleans is that she's, New Orleans is not just important to New Orleans. New Orleans is not just important to Louisiana. She is important to the whole region. She's the jewel of the entire region. So uh, we have a very, Mississippians right. have a very right. strong affection for, for New Orleans. So it's not like, whew, it hit New Orleans and not us. Like nobody feels any sort of relief at yeah. that. Um, so yeah. like it, it was yeah. really tragic to like, I remember turning the news back on and feeling like, you know, 
both a sense of you felt really lucky, but then you see how everybody else is suffering and you immediately, that luckiness mm. is immediately replaced with guilt. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I, I think about this in terms of, you know, what we were saying earlier about not being able to find any first person essays about Dorian because it's just too fresh. I, I do hope that we start to see more people write about these disasters of yore in these re- retrospective kind of ways after you've had a chance to process it and digest it. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. I'm very flattered yeah. that you picked it here. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Two thousand nineteen was also kind of the year that we started to hear from a lot more people in the disabled community about climate, which I'm mm-hmm. really happy about. Um, you and I both have disabled people in our families. Yeah. You know, your mom and my brother, um, and we've experienced you know firsthand this like extra layer of worry and planning that go into thinking about uh particularly disasters and and like evacuating um if you're disabled yeah no it's really serious and the thing about that also is that the baby boomer generation is aging into disability and that's Mm -hmm. a really big ass generation um and for a lot of us we yeah we're all gonna have to start worrying about our parents as we face all of these disasters. And I think about how paradise was a retirement community and how well can you evacuate when you can barely walk, you know? So it's, you might think like, Oh, I'm not disabled and therefore I don't have to worry about that. But you do, you do have to worry about them. And also like, even if you're like, Anyone can become disabled. Like an injury, anything can happen. Um, also, don't and- be a dick. Like <laughs> that's exactly where I was going. That's where I was going. You do have to care about other people. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, totally, totally. Um, okay, so I'm gonna read from this piece by Imani Barberin in Forbes. It's called "Climate Darwinism mm-hmm. Makes Disabled People Expendable," and mm-hmm. it is searing and great. It is. While people with disabilities are familiar with casual ableism, deaths caused by the PG&E shutoff put the effects of disability ignorance into focus. On October 12th, 12 minutes into the PG&E power shutoff, a man who used oxygen died after the middle of the night power loss amidst murky details from the company left him no time to prepare. In posts online, commenters blamed the man for his death and asserted that he should have anticipated and bought a generator. It takes a certain level of callousness to tell disabled people, a group that makes 66 cents to the non-disabled dollar, and who are allowed to be paid well beneath minimum wage, to spend 5000 to $10,000 to avoid death. Yes, thank you. Um, so it, this piece is so good, and I think yeah. it like really nails a lot of things that that I think you know. To be fair, I think 
of course, like if you haven't had to think about it because of yourself or someone in your family, like there are things that that just might be like kind of new information. They don't occur to you. Yeah. You know, but um, but I highly recommend that people read this piece to educate themselves because it's it's great. Yeah. And if you're on Twitter, follow her and listen to the disabled community when they talk about climate. Like I, I have learned so much from disabled disability advocates over the past year. And I'm always very excited to to hear from them. In 2019, there were two really awful events. Um, there was this shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand in March, and there was a shooting in El Paso in August, and both were motivated by eco-fascist ideas. And when I say eco-fascism, um, what it means is basically this idea, the white supremacist version of environmentalism, basically, let's hoard our resources for us. Um, so you can see Brexit as an as as a spinoff of of ecofascism. You can see the border wall as a spinoff of ecofascism. Like that is a climate plan keeping refugees out because those refugees are are coming here because their homes have been destroyed um, largely, but not entirely by climate change um, pretty soon, possibly entirely. Um, So turning them away is a vestige of, of eco-fascism. And I know that you've been part of this conversation for like a really long time. So you've probably seen this conversation evolve over the years, right? Yeah, but like I definitely I definitely think there's just kind of a more virulent version of it now. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's definitely this thing of like, you know, <laughs> the second like extreme right wingers actually accept climate change, it will be it will morph almost immediately into eco-fascism. Like, yeah, it, it is, um, right? The one, yeah, it's like the one thing that's appealing to those on the on the extreme right about acting on climate is that it's a very handy cover for anti-immigration policy. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, which they want in any <laughs> way. So um, yeah, exactly. at, in the immediate yeah. aftermath mm-hmm. of those shootings, there was a lot of debate about whether or not we talk about ecofascism head on. And there was a school of thought that if we talk about it, then more people will do it. Um, and so here's the deal. Ecofascism is not new. Ecofascism is about as old as the actual environmental movement, right? Like if we think about how, mm-hmm. um, you know, people often point to the um, the institution of national parks in the United States as like this great moment of environmentalism. Well, actually what it was was stealing land from Native Americans and making it this <laughs> right. national land that they were no longer <laughs> able to go to. That is ecofascism. Stealing people's land is ecofascism. Um, and preserving it for white folks, that is ecofascism, right? Like it's part of why I don't feel comfortable hiking a lot of the time because each hill and each trail is named after an act of genocide. Like what the fuck? You know? <laughs> like that's really fucking shitty. Um so anyway, um, there was all this debate about like, do we talk about it? Do we shine light on it? Like, do we give it legitimacy? Like people are dead. Who gives a shit about legitimacy? People are dead. People are going to keep dying. And like, you can't just like, you know, la 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 it out of existence. So in December, Jennifer Wright at Harper's Bazaar wrote a really great piece called The Eco-Fascists Are Coming, which I want to read a little bit from. 
The fact that immigrants do not destroy our society and that indeed they are actually essential to certain industries isn't terribly important to anyone with this mentality. Nor is the fact that immigrants commit no more crimes than U.S. citizens. For the regrettable people who regard foreigners as a shit-eating horde, any casualty of climate change is not a sad consequence of a lifeboat mentality. It is a perk. When people like Miller, Stephen Miller, talk about how America should be for native-born Americans, to his mind, white people, do remember that you can subdivide tribes almost indefinitely. Eventually, you're unwilling to help anyone outside your village, then your family, and then, finally, yourself. Mm-hmm. It's just going to provide more fuel to the fire of like, you know, we've got to keep the country for um, quote unquote real Americans. Uh, the whole the, the whole thing of him like describing white people as Native Americans really like is, whew. yeah, for um, fuck's sake, for fuck's sake. Yikes. Yeah. It's time for our last segment, our standout pieces. This is where Mary and I highlight our personal favorites for the year. There's no rules, no rubric. We just pick something that stuck out and stuck with us. And this section is kind of exciting for us anyway, and hopefully for you guys too, because <laughs> oh. we, you know, like we have like, uh, we have different approaches ourselves. I'm a, yeah. more of a journalist. Mary's a creative writer. So it's always exciting for us to see what the other person picked. Yeah. So my pick this time is a piece called Heaven or High Water by Sarah Miller. It was in Popula. And I have yeah. to admit right out the gate that Sarah is a good friend of mine. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and she's also, but she's also like one of these, um, you know, I feel like she's a writer that I'm I'm always just like, how did you do that? Um, you know, <laughs> I feel like about your work often too, where I'm just like, man, that is amazing. Um, <laughs> I well, I feel the same way about you, Amy. Trust me. <laughs> well, this like the thing with with uh, with Sarah is that she she manages to do the, this thing that I I find uh, like completely impossible, which is to approach writing about climate with humor and satire, which is is like mm-hmm. incredibly incredibly hard to pull off, and she somehow manages it. Mm-hmm. And she really does it in this piece. It's hilarious. Like I actually LOL'd to myself, just like rereading this excerpt because I was like, <laughs> "Good one." I love that <laughs> so, you just said LOL. Uh, I know. <laughs> okay, so having her high water, Sarah Miller. This isn't popular. Lying is not my favorite, but when it's called for, the only thing to do is jump in with both feet. So when the first agent, tall, fair, polite, bordering on stern, possibly Swiss, possibly Swedish, asked, do you live in Miami now? Do you know what kind of place you're looking to buy? I said, I live in San Francisco and my husband is in tech. I gave a coy twist to the wedding ring I'd put on in my hotel room. We're looking for a place to hang out when it gets really rainy, LOL, and then to retire to R-O-F-L-M-A-O. He either believed me or did not give a shit. 
The decor was beige and white or stainless steel, except for the books on the nightstand, which were jewel-toned. One of them was written by someone I dislike. I walked around the apartment as if I already owned it, as if within my lifetime, the lobby beneath us would not be decorated with kelp. We rendezvoused again on the balcony. He gestured at the unusual rainy day for this time of year, late March. Usually at night, you will be looking at the best spectacle of a sunset here, he said. He was framed by Biscayne Bay and made me think of expensive butter sitting on a blue ceramic dish. I oohed and awed over the view. Quite genuinely, because if you don't think about the fact that it's filled with thousands of pounds of post-hot Pilates ceviche poops, Biscayne Bay is breathtaking. (laughs) (laughs) I asked how the flooding was. There are pump stations everywhere and the roads were raised, he said. So all that's been fixed. Fixed, I said. Wow, amazing. I asked how the hurricanes were. He said that because the hurricanes came from the tropics, from the south, and this was the west side of Miami Beach, they were not that bad in this neighborhood. Oh, right, I said, as if that made any sense. I asked him if he liked it here. I love it, he said. It is one of the most thriving cities in the country. It's growing rapidly. He pointed to a row of buildings in a neighborhood called Edgewater that were all just three years old. That skyline was all built in the last three years. Wow, I said, just in the last three years, they're not worried about sea level rise? It's definitely something the city is trying to combat. They are fighting it by raising everything. But so far, it hasn't been an issue. I couldn't wait to steal this line, slightly altered. I'm afraid of dying, sure, but so far, it hasn't been an issue. (laughs) Um, So, this... in general is so funny because she like she went I remember like when she was going to do this this story she's like I'm gonna I have this idea like you know I'm gonna go to Miami and I'm gonna tour all these really expensive like pricey real estate places and ask them about sea level rise because like they're totally trying to act like it's not an issue and she's like yeah but like how is the like how is the Miami real estate market not been hit by climate change yet you know um denial is a hell of a drug Uh, Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it's hilarious. Like there's many, there's a few rounds of like her pretending to be someone and like meeting a real estate agent who's like, oh no, it's not a problem. (laughs) It's wild Um, how they just tell these ball face lies. I know. Well, and and like in a lot of cases, I think they probably believe them, you know, like it's like, oh, it's fine. Like the city has pumps and, you know, the roads have been raised. So we're ready for it. And like, you know, yeah, sometimes they want to believe. So it's hard to tell the difference between denial and delusion. And but Mm. I I just love the way that she tells the story and develops out these characters. And I love how conniving she is. It's pretty fucking awesome. Love it. Okay, so what's your pick? My favorite is um, an essay by Emily Johnston. It is called "Loving a Vanishing World," and I gotta say, it was Mm. really hard to pick this year. I know. Um, and I'm really sure you was, had yeah. the same experience where it was just, yes. it was like a smorgasbord of amazing mm-hmm. climate writing this year. Like really um, great. I mean, I, yeah, like I just, I like to just to pause for a moment and say like, like I'm, I'm so excited that there is this much great 
writing on climate happening now. And I know that yeah. sounds weird because, like, I'm not excited that climate change is happening. You know, yeah. don't get me wrong. Yeah, not I'm at not all. excited that there's a need for it or anything no. like that. But I do feel like there's been a lot of... Um, I mean, to me, the fact that there's this much good writing means that humans are actually, like, processing this shit. And, yeah. like... That tends to lead to action. So that's yeah. why I'm excited by it. Yeah. So if there is a silver lining, it is the fact that we are getting better at having this conversation. But it really fucking sucks that we have to have it. Um, yes. But yes. since we do, uh, let's get better mm-hmm. at it. So anyway, um, this essay by Emily Johnston gave me such oh, so uh, a, a plethora of, of amazing feelings as I was reading it. Like going back to read it again in preparation from the show, I was just transported back there. Like she just takes you on this journey of the highest mountaintops and the lowest valleys and back to the yeah. mountaintop again. It's just so beautiful. So I'm just going to jump in. So I want to ask you the same question I ask myself every time I'm entranced by the beauty of this world. What does it mean to love this place? What does it mean to love anyone or anything in a world whose vanishing is accelerating, perhaps beyond our capacity to save the things that we love most? Knowledge is responsibility, isn't it? If we let this world die, if we let it be slaughtered by the shockingly small number of villains who have lied to us for decades, then we become complicit because we are the only ones with the leverage to help it live again. Those who come after us will have far less ability to do so, as we have far less ability than our parents would have had they known the truth to the degree that we do. For better or worse, we are the ones at the intersection of knowledge and agency. So how do we best use that leverage and how do we find the heart to keep going when the realities of loss overwhelm us? And I want to make a difficult point, but one that I think is also clarifying. We cannot expect to feel hopeful, at least not very often, and having any particular hope is likely to end in heartbreak. We have entered already in some places into an era of chaos and great pain. If we ask the universe to make us feel optimistic about that somehow, even as others suffer far more than we do, we are asking for an illusion. But our gift and our task is far more powerful than sunny feelings because we still have the chance to make the space for hope, to act in such a way that hope might exist for others who come after us. Do you want to be among those who let the fossil fuel industry kill the world? Or do you want to be among those who did everything in their power to save what could be saved? We can join, we can rejoin the web of life. We do not have to be its destroyer, but our last best chance is now and countless tasks lie ahead of us. So, so good. I mean, she just does that whole essay is so good. It is. And she does this masterclass of, um, breaking down the hope narrative of how that's not useful. She also is a call to action. It is also a call to process and, you know, acknowledge your climate grief. It also Mm -hmm. destroys, um, this idea that we did this. Like she's very clear that this is not all of our Mm -hmm. fault. Um, she Mm -hmm. also attacks this idea that this is generational, um, negligence necessarily. Yes. Yes. But I like, but then she also does the thing like, like, um, kind of like, uh, 
Bina Venkataraman does in her book of, of like, you know, like be a good ancestor, like make yeah. space for hope for the next generation. Um, exactly. Which I love. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I cry tears of joy. I cry tears of sadness. I cry tears of action <laughs> or activation as I was reading this essay. And so if there is like a new person to the climate conversation, this would be one of the first essays that I recommend reading. Um, it really mm. is just such a beautiful work of art. And I'm just... I, it's something I would go back to on some of my dark days to come back out into the light. Yeah, totally. What a year. Wow. <laughs> I know. I feel like 2019, 2018 was the year that the climate movement like really found its voice. And this year, 2019, it got information. I know. I know. We had some really important conversations and made some serious long overdue changes to the narrative, which is great to see. A lot of those conversations are ongoing, which is why I'm excited to do our 2020 bi-weekly episodes. Yeah, me too. Um, we won't have to like research a whole ass year to do it. Um, and speaking of our 2020 episodes, Amy, why aren't we going bi-weekly until February? Are you ready to share your news? Ba -ba -da -ba. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yes, I am. So I, <clears throat> um, the third season of Drilled is coming out January 21st. And on the same day, we're launching um, a big climate accountability reporting project. So we're going to um, have a website called drillednews.com that will have several different verticals with a few different reporters tackling various things around um, what we call climate accountability. So this idea of looking at all of the things that have stopped action on climate and, and just getting an understanding of, of how those things happened. Um, and, you know, where was their corporate influence? Where was there some wrongheaded thinking about how to talk about this stuff? All of that. Um, we will also be sponsoring Emily Atkins newsletter heated and Yay. uh which is cool and the climate liability news newsletter which will be uh, a weekly roundup um on all of the climate liability cases out there so that's exciting yeah and we'll have um you know more uh, probably some more podcasts launching too, and just all kinds of stuff. We're going to be um, syndicating content to other um, websites and, and national outlets too. So that's exciting. And um, it's a lot of work. So that's why I'm taking that week off to deal with all that stuff and then jump back on hot take. Oh my God, that is a lot. <laughs> and I'm both like really, really proud it's of you and a little it's bit worried about you. We're going to have to <laughs> make sure we don't burn you out. Um, and I know. I know. That's, be good, yeah. Be good. <laughs> um, it's definitely worth the wait. Um, so in the meantime, make sure that you're following us on Twitter. You can find us at, at Real Hot Take. And you can find me at, at Mary Heckler. And Amy is at, at Amy Westervelt. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And all the articles we've discussed are up on our Twitter and in our show notes. And in our 2020 episodes, we'll also be taking climate storytelling questions from listeners. So you can email those to hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes, plural. We've already gotten a few in, which is great. We're really excited yeah. about this. Yeah, really excited. Um, yeah, please send us your, your questions. Um, we'd love to hear about any climate storytelling dilemmas that you're dealing with. And emphasis here on storytelling, we are not pretending to be policy experts over here. So don't ask us, like, you know, what carbon capture capture storage is best because girl i don't know um <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's right um also a reminder that if you like the show please leave us a review or a rating in itunes it helps us reach new listeners and in our case it's especially important because the climate denier trolls are targeting us now um and so <laughs> so we're getting a lot of like lol climate change kind of reviews yeah and, they're really trying to like um, tank it yeah and and like and actually that can be um quite harmful to the show because when your ratings go down then all of a sudden um you become less findable in yeah. the apple podcast apps yeah. so anyway yeah. we appreciate your help with that yeah, and this must be deja vu for you because the same thing kind of happened with Drilled, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I had to, like, uh, put a call out for people <laughs> to, to like, you know, weigh in if they liked it and, you know, talk to the Apple moderators and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's just kind of a pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, folks, leave us good reviews, and if you don't like the show, just, like, write that shit on the back of a receipt and, like, nobody needs to see that shit. Um <laughs> We'll take constructive feedback by email, okay? Right, all right. Exactly. Okay, send that. Yeah. Yeah, tweet at us, whatever. <laughs> um, all right, that's enough for now. Um, we'll talk to y'all in a couple of weeks. Yay, talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Take is written and produced by Mary Anais Hegler and me, Amy Westervelt. It's distributed by the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Our theme song is New Frontier by Flashing Lights. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes, plural, with your questions about climate storytelling or articles you'd like to see discussed on the show. Thanks for listening.